Hey there, I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and you're listening to the Down to Earth PCOS Nutrition Podcast, a place for practical advice for women looking to balance their hormones, ditch dieting, and discover mindset shifts that will keep you motivated and empowered on your healthy eating journey. Are you ready to get started? Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited that you're here today. I have a wonderful guest on with me. Her name is Zoe Klein. She is a Toronto-based social worker who works primarily with individuals struggling with eating disorders, and particularly with binge eating disorder, which is a big reason why I wanted to bring her on the show today, given that many women with PCOS are struggling with binge eating. She uh, was also struggling with binge eating disorder for many years And it wasn't until she was in graduate school that she realized that her food issues actually had a name. So for many years, she saw her previous struggles with binge eating disorder as something that would actually hold her back professionally or would cause people to not believe in her. But thankfully, recently she came to see that she couldn't have been more wrong and that in sharing her story, she was able to help people not only motivate them towards full recovery, but also help many people come out of the woodwork and get the support that they deserve. So Zoe, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I connected on social media, on Instagram. And the reason that I was, first of all, I love your content. And I think that you're sharing such an important, helpful message for many women dealing with binge eating disorder. That's the reason why I wanted to bring you on the show. So you can tell your personal story and also share some advice and tips on how to help someone start the recovery journey if they, you know, feel that binge eating is an issue for them. Sure. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Good. So, and you also um, shared with me that you recently were diagnosed with PCOS yourself. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. So I would say for most of my teenage years, early 20s, and especially into the latter half of my 20s and 29 now, I always suspected that something was off, but I couldn't really, I couldn't really pinpoint it. And, um, what happened in my mid twenties is I started to notice body changes that were not based on lifestyle that were not based on, um, nutrition. And when I would, when I first started seeking it support, a lot of people were saying, Oh, well, you know, you're in graduate school, so you must've been eating a, B and C like, we'll just get you back to a healthy lifestyle, healthy, you know, whatever that means, which is so context dependent. Yes. And despite my insistence that, you know what, I, you know, move my body really regularly. I have a very healthy plant-based diet. Side note, of course you can be healthy, not plant-based, but that's just my eating style. And, um, it took a while for people to start really believing in that. And recently I had, um, blood work done by a GP because I was convinced that I did have PCOS and she said, so your blood work came back fine. I think you're, I, I, I don't think this is accurate. But eventually, for various reasons, I ended up with a specialist um, who was able to confirm that I did have it, um, have it, it being PCOS on an ultrasound. And it was vindicating in a lot of ways because I was like, okay, I knew there was something here. Like, I knew there was a reason why 
I'd feel very uncomfortable after eating certain foods or, um, you know, I didn't understand why my body looked a certain way. Like I would say by and large, I'm still in what society would call a small body, but I would have very, very averse reactions to situ- to foods or life situations that mm-hmm. others around me didn't. So um, I think I'm fortunate to be in one of those situations where it's sort of PCOS with a lowercase p where, you know, you can take medicine and there's little things you can do that make your life really great. And I have been able to implement changes really quickly, but I think I had a really small taste of what it's like to walk into an office and not be believed initially, or maybe be told that the issues you're experiencing are something you're causing. And I can only imagine what it's like to have a more severe case of PCOS and maybe what you might be told as a result. Yeah. And I think a couple of things that you experienced are very common. They're unfortunate, but I think they're very common. The idea that you're already frustrated with things that are happening in your body. And then you're also dealing with reactions that are not really, you know, helping you come to a solution or come to some sort of a diagnosis that would at least make you aware of what it is. Because when you don't know, when you're experiencing things that you have no name for, no diagnosis for, it's very frustrating. And it it is. It is. And I think that, again, you know, I want to put this into context. I'm definitely someone who would be perceived as in a smaller body. And I have a lot of privileges that did make it easy for me to eventually get the help. But people's first reactions were definitely ones of disbelief and ones of, oh, you know, you're sort of covering up what you were doing in grad school. And what I was doing was, you know, eating plants and exercising. Right. And I think that there's sort of this greater issue of sometimes physicians or healthcare people not necessarily believing young women reporting their symptoms, which is a whole other issue. But I think also, why is it that when a woman comes and reports her symptoms, I'm sure this happens with a man, but I I hear this a lot in my own practice with women, that the first step is disbelief and assumption of anxiety, right? Instead of let's look into this and determine the cause because um, that was something that I had to really push for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we know our bodies best. So even though we don't fall into a certain box that the doctor is looking to check, or if the labs are not looking totally off, which is what would set up all the, set off all the alarms, that still doesn't mean that you shouldn't advocate for yourself and look for other solutions or really figure out what's going on with your body. So I think that message is really important. It is. It is. And I think it's really important as much as you can. And I think it's not always easy for everybody, but I think push for a diagnosis, push doctors, push healthcare providers, ask for that specialist recommendation. Even if your doctor thinks that, you know, your GP thinks you don't need it because sometimes things can come up. And even if it doesn't, even if I were to have gone to that specialist and found out I didn't have PCOS, that would have also been okay. But I think you you need that clarity for yourself. Yes, absolutely. So let's go back a little bit. I know you have a a story to tell with your personal experience with binge eating disorder. So take us back a little bit and let's talk about your relationship with food when you were growing up. So I would say probably until the age of like 10, it was very good. Like I was definitely the little girl that ate cake with my whole face and just like loved all food and food was an experience. Um, I was an active kid. I did karate, I did dance, I ran around. So, um, 
you know, maybe looking back there was binging, but I don't really think so. I think it was just a sheer enjoyment of food and as it should be, right? Especially for a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, when I was like six or seven, there was this picture of me enjoying this like massive slice of chocolate cake at a restaurant with the family. And it was just, that's all it was. It was enjoyment. There wasn't, I wouldn't say there was a lot of body awareness at that point. It was just like, you exercise because it's fun. You eat because it's great. And that's, that's the way it was. But I would say after the age of 10, it definitely changed. So was there anything that happened in your life or it was just a change in just kind of growing up? What would do, can you pinpoint, like, was there a certain point? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of it. Like, I know there were certain academic difficulties that came up at a certain point. And um, I imagine that that would have been something. Um, Looking back, I think it might've been the teacher or the situation, but um, I think for whatever reason, I was also friends with a lot of children that were just really small. And, um, while that might seem strange, I started looking at my own body and thinking, okay, I'm slightly larger or like, what's this about? And, um, I think when you're 10, you also have a greater awareness of the media. Um, I think at that point in time, we, we weren't as aware of, as we are now about teaching good body image and young kids and teaching, um, teaching girls to, to respect their bodies. And I think that, I was starting to become aware that I was slightly bigger than some of my friends. Um, my siblings are very naturally small, like just naturally tiny. And I think despite the fact that, um, I would probably have been classified as average size at that time, I started to see myself as really big, but I don't know if that perception of largeness was also, was also maybe, um, characterized by maybe feeling different and wanting to look the same. Right. I don't know if it was so much about like, I think I'm too big or I don't think I look right. So mm-hmm. I think that, so that, that catapulted into a pretty serious diet. So you started dieting around that time. That was the first time you went on diet. Yeah. 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 And, I was, I was in, I was in fifth grade. And do you remember what was it or what, was it like a Weight Watchers or was it something you tried to do on your own or what kind of a. It was, it was self-imposed. And I think the problem is, is, um, sadly those around me thought that I was just developing a greater awareness of my health. And, um, I don't blame anybody for this because I think that this stuff can be very hard to pick up, but I think that there were definitely, um, certain people or certain family members that maybe thought, oh, she's trying to be healthy. She's trying to just be more aware. Um, and I think, being healthy is great, but when um, a 10-year-old starts doing things like waking up at six in the morning to exercise or cutting out a lot of foods, um, that should be something that's concerning. And, but I think that at the time, we didn't have the knowledge that we do now about the development of eating disorders. We didn't have the knowledge. So I can see how a child at that point in time, you know, this is almost 20 years ago, probably looked like she was just being conscious and responsible. And, um, I was, I was involved in martial arts quite regularly. So me waking up to practice karate probably just looked diligent. And, um, as opposed to, okay, there might be something else going on here. Um, but I remember at that time I was very, very, um, I was, I was focused on the idea of, I want to lose weight. I don't think I had a number in mind, but 
the the other problem was is there was a lot of television around um like people would like go away from the summer and they'd come back to school and they'd like transform into like the cool popular girl and I was a smart kid, but I was nerdy and I was quirky. And I think I was also sort of going for that. Like, you know, I'm going to pop into school one day and I'm going to be the belle of the ball. And that just wasn't who I was. And, but I wanted to be something that I wasn't and I wasn't appreciating who I actually was. So I think there were a lot of things that went into that diet, but that diet lasted, I think about three, four months. Wow. Yeah. And when was binging something that w- was emerging? Like, when was that some, the starting? Um, looking back, I would say after, after that diet finished, I think one day there was pizza on the kit table and I just kept eating it and eating it and eating it. And I felt terrible after I was like, oh, this is what people, this is what people aren't supposed to do. Like, this is why I, this is why I, you know, look the way I do. There was nothing wrong with the way I looked. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the way any child looks, but um, there was, there was that. And it was almost like exhilarating at that time. Like, look, I can just have this. Cause I think that sometimes kids also play with their emotions with food because food is something they can control. And that was something that I think really springboarded that experience. Um, it's very possible it could have happened before. Like I can, like, I, I wouldn't doubt that maybe at seven or eight, I opened a cupboard and ate a lot of things, but I don't know if that was binging as opposed to, oh, look, there's candy. I'm going to come enjoy a lot of it now. Right. And I think that one thing that viewers need to be clear on is eating a really big meal or enjoying a big dessert when you're happy and you're engaged and you don't feel bad about that. That's not a binge, right? But a true binge is eating a lot of amount, like a lot of amounts, a lot of, a lot of food in secret and feeling shame about it. So I think if we're looking at when was the first time that happened, probably at the conclusion of that diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point because first of all, I think we're using, or some people are using um, binge in a very loose way. Um, So we see it on social media, binge watching and binge drinking. And not, you know, a lot of times that's not necessarily, um, it's not at all the same thing as having a disorder that is characterized by binging, which is something something that's happening on a more regular basis. So it's not a one-off thing or, you know, something that's so delicious you can't stop eating it, but then you don't do that again for weeks or months. So not every, like you said, occasion of overeating or maybe consuming a large amount of food is necessarily a binge. And it's certainly not an indication that someone has a disorder. So can you talk a little bit about the definition of binge eating disorder? Absolutely. And I think it's really important to do so. So binge eating disorder is classified by um, multiple events, um, usually within the uh, context of a month. Sometimes for severe cases, it can be weak of um, eating large amounts of food in secret. Um, usually the, those um, eating periods are categorized by shame, anxiety, anger. Um, the individual who's engaging in binging often feels like they can't stop. I'll have a lot of clients feel like a part of their brain takes over. Um, they often feel primal. Um, I've had a lot of people describe it that way. Um, and then there's often an urge to quote unquote hide the evidence. So people who engage in binging or might have binge eating disorder and struggle with this 
will become experts at hiding garbage. Mm-hmm. Will um, and they they feel very terrible about what they've done. They feel that they've done something wrong. What's important about binge eating disorder is binge eating disorder is also cla- uh, characterized by huge periods of restriction. So. Um, people with BED are very often embarrassed about their condition um, and they are used to hearing very awful things said to them. You know, you're gluttonous, you're greedy, you have no shame, you have no willpower, all those things. Truth is someone with BED often has immense willpower because they are restricting something either emotionally, physically, or mentally for actually quite a period of time. And that's something that often is a huge precursor to that binge. So binge eating disorder is not um, late night food at 2 a.m. with your best friends. It's a very severe, persistent condition with um, major psychological consequence to the person. Um, And this is true for people of all genders. Um, Speaking for myself as a woman, I think that one of the things I felt about it was very embarrassed because none of my other female friends were doing this. And you're often told by society that women shouldn't eat large portions of baby and C. And I think that that's, that was a huge reason as to why I was binging certain foods in secret. And I think that's something we have to be aware of as clinicians is the fact that still the female appetite is categorized as disgusting and that's not okay. And I think people have to, work with clients to help them feel comfortable around food and take the morality of that out of that so that they can make the most healthful decisions for themselves. And as a therapist, my goal is to also unpack that and help people understand where did you learn your appetite was disgusting or where did you learn these elements of morality around food? And because I think that gets in the way of people being able to make nutritionally sound decisions or decisions that they want to make. Right. Mm-hmm. And being able to take the advice of their dietitians because it's so hard when you've been basically verbally abused about your appetite for your entire life to make good decisions. Yeah. I see that a lot. And I also see women talk about how they were brought up to think certain foods are too good to resist or too, you know, food has too much power over them or that, you know, if a certain food is in their environment, there is no um, ability to regulate your intake of it. It's either all or nothing. So there's this kind of really clear dichotomy between like, I'm either restricting, like you said, or I'm binging. There's really nothing in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And something I learned from a dietitian that I saw in my 20s was, no, like it's, it's actually really important to have a really good nutritionally dense diet, but it's important to fit in the things that you like so that you don't binge, mm-hmm. so that you can enjoy those things and move on and so that you can take the anxiety and the emotions out of whatever that is, right? And I think that, you know, what I've come to learn, and of course I'm not giving nutrition advice, but just for myself, is that as someone with PCOS, finding ways to satisfy your cravings and then have other things that you need is better for me at the least than saying, I'm not going to eat any of this ever. Because one of the problems that I always experience that I know understand, that I know can attribute to PCOS is a primal hunger. And that was often something that was characterized as like no willpower, blah, 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 blah. But that 
can be better addressed when you just have a great diet that also includes things that you like regularly. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that you have to make room for, for, you know, eating the foods that you know are good for your body and nourishing and fueling and are kind of like the foundation, but incorporating those other foods that you may feel are forbidden or not allowed or, you know, unhealthy or bad or whatever label you put on them, still allowing those things to be a part of your diet. But how would you, how do you kind of manage that? And especially as someone who has a history with binge eating, if someone has a certain trigger food, let's say, or something that causes them to really not feel in control, how can they start incorporating that in a healthy way? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good question. And of course, I'm going to frame this as the therapist because I'm definitely not giving nutrition advice here. But um, one of the things that I recommend to my clients is, is that we don't break all their binge eating rules in one go. Because I think sometimes people have this perception of, okay, I'm going to heal from binge eating disorder. I'm going to just put all these foods in my house and it becomes really chaotic and they get upset. So what we'll usually work on is we'll say, okay, um, you want to be able to go out with your colleagues and have a donut and a coffee. That's a great goal. So why do we think that donuts are giving you anxiety? And sometimes people will talk about, you know, you see this type of person on TV eating the donut or, um, I was told that donuts mean that you're this or donuts mean that you're that. Right. And I think we have to unpack that messaging because even though to some people that might seem ridiculous, there are a lot of foods that are either put on a pedestal or touted as poison. And I think that we have to unpack those stereotypes is of if you eat a donut, if you eat a cookie, you're this or you're that. And usually with a client's permission, we'll do a food exposure in a session where we might get a portion of something and they'll enjoy it. They'll enjoy as much of that as they're comfortable with. And we'll write their anxiety and we'll talk about it. And we will help plan how that donut, that pastry, that cookie, that whatever it is can be part of their life, part of their day on the days they want it to be, but that it doesn't take over their full life. And we'll systematically go through breaking those food rules until they feel good about it. And eventually what some of my clients will realize is, you know, I actually went to that event and I didn't feel like a donut. And that was something that they chose from a place of attunement of, you know what, I just didn't feel like that. That would make me feel very good right now, as opposed to, I can't have this. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. So in addition, what I'm hearing you saying, in addition to the part where there's over restriction prior to the binge, there's some anxiety around the outcome of the binge or what, what would this mean about me if I do eat this food? Exactly. Um, Yeah. And then there's kind of more of a need to work on reducing that anxiety first. So there, there, there is, because what happens a lot with my clients is they'll say, okay, so I messed up today by eating X. So I may as well eat whatever, 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 whatever in large quantities that are going to make them not feel good. And to be clear, like none of the foods that they're listing is I may as well eat are bad or wrong or any of those things, but they're, they're not enjoying those foods. They're having those foods to effectively punish themselves, right? So I think that we have to take the energy out of that food so that they can make the choice. And I think recovery, in my opinion, is not always eating that food if it's there, but knowing you can and knowing that that doesn't mean anything about you as a person. Mm-hmm. So you don't believe in restricting 
you know, at least in the initial stages of recovery for someone, you wouldn't have them like avoid certain foods. You know, I have a lot of clients say I can't bring bread into my house or there are certain things that they try to avoid because they really feel a, a sense of lack of control around it. Is that from a psychological, like from the mental health perspective, would you say that's not really conducive to healing? Like, because eventually the person will have to to have that food in their environment, right? Well, to me, to me, that goes back to the sense, the systematic desensitization. So we would write down a list of things that they feel that way about. And then the client will choose the food rules they want to break first and how they want to do that. So eventually I think it is important to take the energy out of bread. And when I say the energy, the, oh my goodness, I can't have this in the house. But I think that it's unfair to people to say, we're going to do that with bread, burgers, you know, cookies, all these things all at once, I think that it's important to go down that list. And again, this needs to be done in consultation with a dietitian and consultation with any medical requirements that they have, because some people do have medical diagnoses where it's helpful for them to eat in a certain way. And it's obviously my position to ensure I'm in line with that. But I think that within reasonable measure, it's important to take the energy and the anxiety out of food to provide choice. Because I believe that recovery is characterized by choice. Mm -hmm. Recovery is not having to eat A or not eating B, but it's saying, this is all here and I have the ability to make nutritionally sound decisions and also decisions that allow me to enjoy food for food. And I think giving somebody the ability to trust themselves to make choices is one of the biggest um, tenets of recovery. And was that a big part for you? Like when you were recovering? From so I didn't actually realize that I had anything. Um, so my, it's like, I would say late teens and early twenties were characterized by pretty severe binging. Um, probably let's say 17, 18 to 21, 22. And um, around about 23, I got into my head and I realized that this is not a thing, but at the time I used the term food addiction and I believed I had an addiction that I needed to resolve this addiction. And I'm not going to go into the ways that I did that because I don't want viewers to think that this is advice, but I started eating, I would say objectively healthy but I was very, very, very restrictive in my diet. And at the time I thought that's just how I'm wired. Um, I need to do this. This is whatever, whatever. Um, and um, in some ways I felt good because I was eating a lot of healthy food, but there were very strong, rigid rules in terms of the way I was eating. And it would be one thing to say, you know what, I, um, don't like to pair these two things together because I don't feel great. That's that, that's fine. But it was characterized by a lot of staunch morality at the time. Um, and I think that I was very, looking back, I was obviously very scared about what, how I was eating and what was happening. And I think I, I wanted some control back into my life, which makes sense. Um, but when I was in graduate school, I was in my first year and we were in this um, adolescent diagnosis and treatment class. And um there was a unit on eating disorders. It went, um, from what I understand from my colleagues, we actually received a lot more training on eating disorders than our peers at other schools. But 
um, they started talking about binge eating disorder and listing the diagnostic criteria for it. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I had that. I had this, I had this, I had this, I had this. And I went home and I researched it after and I realized that this was something that I most definitely had for over a decade. And maybe aspects of that appeared before, who knows, but this was something I definitely had. And I was irritated because at certain points in my teens, like there was this one story I have and I talked about on my Instagram page where I walked into this clinic that you know, you didn't need your mom or dad to go. And I tried to talk to someone about it. I, I, I said, I think I have a food issue. And at the time I was told that um, I wasn't very smart and I was probably acting out through food. So I never addressed that again. But at that point in grad school where I'm learning about this, I'm thinking, oh my God, I could have gotten treatment for this. This was yeah. a condition, right? And I started to think, okay, is what I'm doing right either. So a lot of like the reintroduction foods and trying to safely break fear foods was something I did by looking on the internet myself as an MSW grad student. And I do not recommend this. Um, I think at the time there was still a lot of shame. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of graduate students in um, social work, and I imagine in other clinical disciplines grapple with is if I go see someone, is someone going to think that I shouldn't be licensed to practice? If I um, admit I'm having difficulty with this, is my preceptor going to look down on me? And I was very much in that camp. So just to be clear with everybody, I do not recommend doing what I did, but um, I would say it was reasonably successful. Um, And I would say my relationship with food is good. um, But the difficulty during that period of time is, I did start to notice body changes that I now understand was probably more of PCOS manifesting itself. Mm -hmm. And the difficult thing about trying to recover on your own is having those thoughts of like, Oh, this is why I would, you know, felt the way I did before. This is my fault. And that's why I think it's really important to have not only a social worker, a therapist involved, but a dietitian and a doctor so that you can be properly screened for anything else you have, because there are a lot of health conditions like PCOS where some of us do experience primal hunger that may impact a bench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there are so many factors that go into it. So it's not really something that um, can be treated with, of course, a pill or, or some medication no. <laughs> or no. even a certain food, right? So there's, you know, so many um you know, components, when you look at something like describing the primal hunger, for example, it could be related to hormonal imbalances, your insulin. And that is, of course, a very, you know, strong characteristic of PCOS. But then you've mentioned the anxiety, which we know there's a huge overlap between um, eating disorders and PCOS and anxiety. So all of these things kind of are working together. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's very important that, like you said, someone looks at it from multiple different angles. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And that's why those of my clients that come to me for e- eating disorder recovery concerns, I very much insist that there's a dietitian and a doctor involved because I think that comprehensive care is really, really important. And it's important to me that my recommendations are in line with 
anything else medically that's important to know. And that somebody is able to help somebody review their nutrition, review how, how they're eating and why, because I think that ED recovery is multifaceted. There are so many things that go into it. And I think that people deserve as much attention and care as possible that's tailored to exactly that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, so say someone listening right now is saying, well, I think I have binge eating disorder, or I think my binges are more than a one-off thing. What can they do to get started? Like what's the very first thing that someone should do to start healing binge eating disorder? I would say as much as possible, as much as you can, in the context you can, contact a therapist. Because even if you don't meet diagnostic criteria, but you still do not feel you have a good relationship with food, that is enough of a reason to go Mm -hmm. see somebody. And I think that there's a lot of fear. I see this in um, some people I treat, sort of uh, more the, the men that come into my practice, is they'll say things like, yeah, I think I have like night eating or something, but um, I'm not sure if that's a diagnosed disorder. And my response to them is always, even if you were to not meet diagnostic criteria, I still think that what you're telling me is important. Right. Because I think that A, people can have chaotic or difficult relationships with food, even if it doesn't meet BED criteria. And it's important to discuss that. I think two sometimes what people describe as night eating or whatever words they want to use can become binge eating disorder. Um, And I also think that if you do have binge eating disorder, that you deserve treatment. And oftentimes a social worker or a dietitian can be the best line of defense because sometimes, sometimes doctors don't always have the best training in terms of recognizing eating disorders. Um, there's some wonderful doctors, but in my experience, I find that it's better to go to a social worker or dietitian first. Mm-hmm. However, um, what I always um, coach my clients to do when they're going to the doctor, and I think in this, and, and I think in this reason, if you go to your GP, it's important to use the words impair or impact. Mm-hmm. Meaning, when you describe your relationship with food, be clear with your medical provider in terms of what this impairs you from doing, or how this impacts you. Because sometimes those are the best ways to trigger a referral. Because sometimes a doctor spends about 10, 15 minutes with you and they can think, oh, maybe you're just anxious because, you know, you just finished college and you're probably eating a lot of pizza while you're studying for your exams. Don't worry about it, right? And I think that we need to sometimes use the right words to get the reactions that we need. Mm -hmm. So when you see clients, do you find that binge eating is something that, or disordered eating of any type, whether it meets criteria or not, does it, um, is it something that needs to be managed for the rest of someone's life or how, how do you see it from a mental perspective, mental health? Context dependent, I think. Um, I'll use my own case as an example in terms of PCOS. So with PCOS, from what I've read and from what I've understood, what I've been instructed there are certain foods that can sometimes cause someone to feel inflammation or there's certain ways that someone can eat to feel better or, um, you know, there's certain things that one can do for themselves when they have PCOS. And I think that it's been really, really helpful for me to follow those medical recommendations, but it's also been really important for me to make sure I am not a hundred percent restricting anything because 
I know from my personal history, that would not be a good idea. Um, I'm very much recovered, but um, that's something for me that I think is really important that nothing is 100% off limits, but that I'm eating in a way that supports my body functioning optimally. And I think that those two things can go together. Um, in terms of my own clients, I've seen people where their disordered eating is very much based around certain life events um, or it's situational. And once that situation is resolved, um, their symptoms resolve. But I also think that those people need to be equipped with the tools to manage should another life situation come up that might trigger those same feelings. Mm -hmm. So um, I do have somebody in my practice who um, was in recovery for many years, was doing excellent. And then unfortunately um, there was sort of this situation involving slander that um, caused a resurgence in this individual's uh, BED symptoms because those same feelings came up. So I think that people people can definitely recover full recovery is possible. And I also think it's important for someone to be aware of are there situations where I might be more liable to binge Mm -hmm. and how can I get help in that kind of context? And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And that doesn't mean you are any less recovered or any less trustworthy. It's the same way someone might be, I don't know, prone to an asthmatic reaction if they walk up a hill or something and they just take their puffer with them. It's, you know, it's really, it's really no different. And I think that um, as clinicians, we have to destigmatize BED and we have to try to normalize it. And I'll use things with clients like I'll say, you know, if you were had chronic leg pain and you were walking up the stairs every day to work, like, you know, you take some Advil with you, right? Just to, just in case you needed it. And I think treat like the tools you learn in treatment or the ability to access treatment is like an Advil. It can be there when you need it. Maybe you don't, but I think that it's good. It's good. It's good to, it's good to have that in your back pocket. Yeah. And I think just knowing that you have the tools can reduce the anxiety around it because whether or not you end up using some of them or all of them, just the fact that you've already developed some coping mechanisms around those, you know, you know, the triggers or whatever, you know, situations bring up more anxiety for you can be reassuring. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people, people deserve that. And, um, that's, that's really my, my purpose. Okay. Um, so I think, um, we covered so many important things that can help women. Um, is there anything else that you would advise someone realizing that they may have binge eating disorder or someone who is struggling with disordered eating? What are some uh, final thoughts you have for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you go to see someone, be it a doctor, be it a social worker, be it a dietitian, um, it's really, really helpful to maybe write down some of the events that have concerned you. So for example, um, let's say you're somebody who finds that they have multiple binges a week. So what I'll often have people do is write down when those occurred, um, what happened before the binge and what happened after the binge. And sometimes people don't necessarily want to talk about what they ate during the binge. And that can be really difficult and that's completely understandable. But, um, as a therapist, understanding the antecedents and the consequences, meaning like what happened before and after is really important because that helps me give them the care that they, they, that, that they deserve. And sometimes even writing it down can be helpful for a client because they can feel, okay, 
you know, this, I'm not just overthinking this. This is real. This is an issue. I can get help for this. And I think a lot of the time in my experience, um, with some of my, a lot of my female clients, women are not usually believed the first time when they report their symptoms. And I think that there needs to be some validation. And sometimes that can come even from themselves from writing it down and saying, look, like, you know, I, this is going on. I'm not imagining this and I can and will, and I can and will get help. Mm -hmm. You spoke a little bit about writing things down. Can you talk about journaling? Is that something that you use in your practice a lot? Um, So I do, I I, I do have people um, journal, sometimes even about urges. So they'll have certain skills that we use to manage binge urges and I'll have them write down how they felt about it after, because I think that that's really important um, in terms of understanding what was it like to conquer this urge or what worked for you after. So we can look at patterns because sometimes what I'll do is I'll have clients set a 20 minute timer and they'll find, Oh, I got busy with one of my kids. I, um, ended up calling someone, I realized I was just really hungry for dinner and I made a great meal. Right. And we'll look at patterns and we'll say, okay, you know, what can we learn about these benches? Like I I, I believe that when somebody benches, they're expressing a need. And what I always say to clients is you're expressing a need and you deserve to have that need met. Let's figure out what that is. And sometimes journaling can be a good tool in terms of pinpointing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Zoe, thank you so much. This was so helpful. I think a lot of women will find um, some value in what you've said. When, where can people find you and learn more about you and follow you? Yeah, so I would love to have people follow me at Zoe Klein Social Work online. So Z-O-E-K-L-E-I-N Social Work. So S-O-C-I-A-L-W-O-R-K. Um and I post a lot of content about BED, eating disorders, mental health, and I would love to connect. Yeah, so I'll link to that in the show notes as well so people can find you um, through there. Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you so much. All right, bye.